Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening uh, or morning, everyone, uh, depending on wherever you are. Um, my name is Osgur Sinanoglu. Um, I'm a professor of electrical and computer engineering and uh, the lead PI and managing director of Center for Cybersecurity here at NYU Abu Dhabi. I am honored to introduce the speaker of the night, uh, my close friend and colleague, Mihalis Maniatakos. Um, professor Maniatakos joined NYU Abu Dhabi um, as an assistant professor of electrical and computer engineering right after he received his PhD from Yale University in 2012. He's been a tenured associate professor for a little over a year now. His research work is in cybersecurity in general, uh, privacy preserving computations, security of industrial control systems, and additive manufacturing security in particular. During his time here at NYU Abu Dhabi, he has started his research lab called MoMA, uh, modern microprocessors architectures. Though he has been one of the pillars of our Center for Cybersecurity ever, ever since he joined in 2012, he's been one of the co-PIs of the center and the co-director in, ch in charge of cybersecurity education as of last year. He's actually busy running Seesaw uh, various competitions as part of C the Seesaw, famous Seesaw event these days. Just to give the audience uh, some idea about the significance and the visibility of the work that uh, Professor Maniatakos and his, his lab perform. Mm -hmm. In uh, 2017, uh, they discovered a vulnerability in a general electric device that could be exploited to shut down parts of the power grid. Uh, they presented their work at the Black Hat conference that year. And uh, right, after, right after that, uh, General Electric uh, responded by issuing a few patches to fix this vulnerability. So this is research that is relevant, practical, and obviously impactful. Uh, maybe something more related to tonight's lecture, uh, Maniatakos and his lab have fabricated the world's first processor computing directly on encrypted data uh, last year. We actually have this chip in our labs. Uh, this chip has a coprocessor that supports partially homomorphic encrypted execution. It's called COFI. Um, Professor Maniatakos' research has been funded by agencies in the US as well as the UAE. Uh, a few of them are US Office of Naval Research, DARPA, Con Edison, the energy company that provides energy for New York City, as well as uh, ADEC and uh, Petroleum Institute in the UAE. His lab has published papers that were recognized through awards, such as the Distinguished Papers Finalist in one of the top conferences in cybersecurity and DSS. It's now my pleasure to turn it over to uh, Mihalis for an exciting lecture ahead. Thank you, Osgur, for the beautiful introduction. You said much more than I thought you would. Uh, I really appreciate it. All right, uh, good morning or good evening, everyone. Um, it's morning for me, I'm in New York currently. Uh, hope I don't look too sleepy. I'm not. Um, I'm waking up early. Um, so um, today we'll talk a bit about privacy, right? Um, the title of the talk, as you have already seen, is Privacy in a Globally Interconnected World. But before we dive into specifics about privacy, I'd like to start talking about something else. And uh, I'd like to talk about gadgets, right? That I, mean, I assume everybody in this talk likes gadgets. 
And gadgets now, you know, they're more um, prevalent in our lives. Uh, everybody has a smartphone nowadays. Most people, smart TVs, um, they're in, the, in our houses, fitness trackers. We see a lot of voice assistants, right? Everybody has some gadgets one way or another. But we also see the more tech-savvy people um, going into more gadgets, more advanced ones, more fancy ones, like a smart baby monitor or a smart thermostat that's smart enough to understand the temperature needs of your house and adjust accordingly, um, smart light bulbs, or even smart refrigerators that look at your um, food and understand whether you need to buy more groceries or not, right? Um, and there's a level of gadgets that, you know, I think they're ridiculous and I find them useless, but, you know, they're there and they exist for a reason, I guess. You know, you have smart shirts, like shirts that understand uh, how your, your body behaves, a smart hairbrush, it actually recognizes how your the movement of your of brushing your hair or something like well I don't have much hair to, to brush but um, supposedly it gives you advice and tips on how to brush your hair and then even the smart egg tray right it tells you how um, how fresh your eggs are uh, so there are a lot of gadgets right a lot of devices that we have in our house that have what we call smart capabilities. Um, so there's an umbrella term for these devices, and they're all called Internet of Things or IoT, right? And I'll be using that term throughout this talk. So IoT devices is anything that's smart, right? It's kind of a com computerized thing, like um, a fitness tracker that tracks your pulses and your um, when you run, your um, distance and speed. Um, and, you know, if we're in a live audience, I would ask the audience how many of these devices you have in your house. Right? And I want you to look around for a minute, right? And try to see uh, how many you have in your house. And if I do that here where I am, I see at least five or six around me. Uh, and there must be much more in, in all the rooms of the house. Um, some statistics I've collected um, in the US, uh, the average US, the US households have an average of 11 such devices, right? And that's a significant number that keeps increasing um, as <clears throat> In the, in the recent years. In the UAE, I was trying to find numbers for it. I couldn't find them for generally IoT, but I found some data for specifically smart TVs. And you see that more than 85% of UAE households have a smart TV. And actually, these voice assistants are starting becoming very prevalent as well. Alexa, Amazon Alexa, Google Home, uh, the Echo, more than 35% of the houses now have some voice assistant, right? So this this is an increasing trend, right? We see more and more in the houses. And overall, globally, uh, we see more than 20 billion devices active, right? And this is a very important number to remember, right? So we understand all the problems that come with having such big numbers of IoTs around the world. So again, I'll repeat, globally, more than 20 billion IoT devices are, are active, and we expect this number to greatly increase in the coming years. So um, what is IoT? A definition, I know definitions are boring, but um, I'll just uh, go through it quickly. IoT describes a network of physical objects or things that are embedded with sensors, software, and other technologies for the purpose of connecting and exchanging data with other devices over the internet. And I'll, I'll focus only on the parts that matter. We're talking about objects like a phone, like a watch or a fitness tracker, 
that exchanges data over the internet, right? And that's the important thing I'd like us to focus on because that's the main um, focus of this talk. We have a lot of device in our house that without us, most of us understanding, they do go to the internet and they exchange data with other parts of the internet and they share information, you know, typically with the, um, the creator of the manufacturer of the device, but there are also many connected services that we have through IoT. So um, I'll give you an example. Um, I'll focus on, I focus on smart TVs because most of us have a smart TV and they're very prevalent in the UAE as well. So when you go to uh, Lulu or Carrefour and you buy a smart TV, right? Um, you, you buy it, you take it to your home, and when you turn it on, the first thing it asks you is to connect it to the internet, right? That's the first thing. Whenever you turn it on, the first time it tells you, I need to connect to the internet, right? This is, that's why it's called IoT or smart TV. In the past, the older TVs, right? They had no internet connection, but nowadays, modern TVs, modern equipment, first thing connects me to the internet, right? And what do we do? Well, everybody has a router in their house. So you give it the Wi-Fi access to the TV, and now your TV is connected to the internet, right? Through that, you can watch Netflix, or you can do other things. So you can YouTube, right, on your directly on your TV. So when the process happens of you connecting the TV to the internet, uh, typically there's a message, actually always there's a message coming to you saying, do you accept the terms and conditions, right? And most of us, I'd say more than 99% of us are guilty of not actually reading through that, right? Because it's, we think it's long boring documents, you just click next, 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 next without really caring what you actually do. But the idea of these terms and conditions also define your privacy policy, right? And you also, by accepting that, you accept automatically the privacy policies of the manufacturer. So when you buy your smart TV and you click accept and you don't read what you do, you don't know exactly what the TV will do with your data, right? Um, and I'm not blaming anyone. I mean, it is a problem on the manufacturer side that asks people that are not lawyers to go through very lengthy text and try to understand what they're doing, right? I mean, this should not be expected on the consumer side. There should be some kind of a middle ground that if you have very clear indication of what is the TV going to, going to do with your data, right? And actually, that's a fight we have picked up as security experts on how to make this legalese, right, this language for lawyers accessible to people who are not lawyers. How can I know exactly what my TV is going to do with my data without having to go through a document that's a, a thousand pages long, right? So I'm not blaming you, but you have to understand when you accept such conditions and policies, you accept everything that comes with it, right? And that's something you should be aware of. So when we accept this privacy uh, policy, right, it means the manufacturer will connect to the internet and will exchange data over the internet, right? That's what we said IoT devices do. And there's an experiment done by some researchers in the UK that they bought devices and they placed them in a lab in the US and a lab in the UK, right? And they're trying to trace where the device is communicating to. So they saw from the US lab, many, many of the connections ended in the US, but many went to the European Union, some of them in China, some of them in Korea or other places, right? So you bought a device in the US and the device is talking to Korea. Right? That's something that we should be aware of. Same thing in the UK, you buy a device in the United Kingdom, 
Um, and then much of the data goes to the U.S. And that's not unexpected because the U.S. is considered the technological capital of the world. So we expect many of the devices to connect to Amazon, to connect to Microsoft, to connect to Facebook or Netflix that are headquartered currently in the United States. So many of the UK devices also send data to the United States. Uh, some in the European Union, again, China, Korea is there as well, and other countries as well. So this is what I want you to remember, right? You have so many small devices in your house in the UAE, and many of them, or most of them, are actually sending data to the US, to the UK, to China, or other countries. And the most um, common domains that we see that happening is Amazon is a main one because of these servers. Uh, Google also, uh, there's Netflix as well. Even if you haven't enabled Netflix in your smart TV, your TV still talks to Netflix about your preferences, viewing preferences, and other sites as well. Um, so uh, the conclusion of the slide is that the moment you buy an IoT device, it can send your data everywhere in the world. And um, I'd like to be more specific, right? Uh, because I said that, you know, I bought a smart TV, let me focus on a, smart, on a Samsung smart TV. I connect it to the internet, and then I see that my device actually talks both in service in the US and also in service in Korea. So I do know from my house in the UAE, of my house in New York, the device sends data to Korea, right? And this is something I, I'm trying to understand further and I'll guide you through the process. So what does it mean for a device to talk from New York to Korea, right? I mean, it's a long way to go. Uh, it's a long flight if you are to take it. So what does it mean that data goes there? How does this happen? And many of you are familiar with the internet, right? The internet is, is a lot of computers connected, right? And most of computers have an address. Uh, think of like a postal address, like a house, right? That my computer knows how to talk to the next computer. The next computer will talk to the next computer. So hop by hop or node by node, I find my way through the world and I ended up my messages starting from New York, they end up going to Korea, right? And most of it happens through cables. So you don't expect much, you know, you have Wi-Fi in your house, right? But from your the, your Wi-Fi is connected to your router that's connected to the plug of your house. And then cables start from there, right? So actually, point to point, me in New York, talking to you in Abu Dhabi or other parts of the world, Greece, I know some people are watching from Greece, uh, the packets leave my place in New York currently and they travel through the world and they arrive to you through cables um, that the ISPs, the service providers have uh, laid out around the world. And address by address, the address in the internet is called IP. So I have an IP. All of you in your house, you have your own IP that's unique to your house, to your Wi-Fi, the wireless router you have. And then I know your address because you connected to the Zoom meeting and I communicate to you through the, through this um, internet protocol. So the world is, is connected, right? We know that, uh, but it's not really magic, right? It's just cables. Uh, and here in this slide, you can see actually the underwater cables, right? Because they're continents and the U.S. is not connected to Europe uh, by land. Unless, you know, it's winter and you can go to Alaska, but this doesn't really happen, right? So many of the connections are actually underwater. 
So connecting from London to New York, there's a long underwater cable that runs through and have, so these are the cables. I have a, a photo, um, picture of them here. Um, and you have ISPs from time to time actually laying down those through special boats. They lay them down around uh, uh, along the sea from one side to the other. And they're also divers trying to ensure that they don't get stuck in reefs or uh, on other places. And, you know, they're cables that go through the, uh, the sea and they may also sometimes, they may be attacked by animals, right? Uh, sharks are, are known to be biting on cables. And many outages, sometimes the internet stops working, many outages can be attributed to animals, right? Either on the land or on the sea. And you may lose connection because a shark beat a cable underwater. And, but of course, you have many more than just one cable, right? There is redundancy. Uh, so you expect if something like that happens, you fix it, but you won't just bring down the internet, right? And, you know, you, uh, you have to find solution against sharks. Sometimes they change how the cables, the material of the cable, or you may, I don't know, find more aggressive solutions towards addressing the shark problem. Um, so I kind of try to explain that, you know, there's not magic, right? My house in New York to Korea that my Samsung TV talks to, it goes through cables, right? It goes through, and the cables just connect computers. So as, or I call them nodes, right? I call them one node. So what are the nodes that my uh, computer connects to? And I did an experiment in my place here in New York. Um, how does the data go from New York to Korea? And um, there's this program you can run in your computer in Linux. There's also in Windows and Mac. Uh, and what it tells you is that all the locations, one by one, every computer that your data goes through, computer one, computer two, computer three, all the way. And you see, have at least 15 computers. My, my data here, my smart TV data that will go through to arrive to Samsung in Korea. Um, so you understand there's a lot of happening every time we we'll do anything on the internet. And to give an idea exactly uh, about the path uh, from New York, I thought that the next hop, well, there are many hops in New York because you leave your house to the ISP. There are a few hops in New York, but the main ones are the next stop was in Dallas, in Texas, and then we went to Los Angeles, and the packets left Los Angeles to arrive in Thailand, and from Thailand, it went to Korea. So, you know, when I, I talk to my smart TV and I say smart TV power on, my voice left my house in New York and it arrived all the way to Korea, going through Dallas, Los Angeles, Thailand, and at the, in Seoul, in Korea. So what I'm trying to say here is that, you know, there are many computers that intercept or actually are used to mediate my communication from my house to the Samsung servers in Korea, right? And I counted that I go through more than 15 nodes, right? So the question that arises, and I'd like to bring up, is what happens with my data, right? I mean, all the nodes that participate in the transfer of data from one place to another can actually see what I'm trying to do, right? They can hear my voice. If I'm typing my password, they can see my password, right? So this is a privacy problem, right? If you're using the internet and our, our fitness tracker sends my, my cardio data, to a server in the U.S. somewhere, right? 
of the whole internet can see what I'm doing. And that's a privacy problem, right? Because I don't control who can see my personal information. So before we, uh, I start talking about uh, privacy in more specifics, I'd like to, to explicitly define privacy, right? But because I think, I personally think uh, through communications with other people uh, that there's some, some misconception about privacy. Right. And when I ask everyone, right, if, again, it was a live audience, I would ask you, what do you think is privacy? Right. Most people, the answer I get is I'm hiding in my information. Right. I'm keeping information a secret. Right. And what I'd like to bring up is that this is incorrect. Privacy is not about hiding. Right. So the exact definition of privacy is the right of individuals to control or influence what information related to them may be collected and stored and by whom and to whom that information may be disclosed, right? And again, boring definition, a focus on the important stuff, is the right to control, right? I'm not saying hide. I'm saying I have the right to know exactly who does what with my data, right? I choose to share with Google, but I share exactly what I want. I don't want Google to get more information from me. Same with Facebook, same with Samsung, right? I have the right to control exactly what information Samsung gets from me and what it does with my information. Exactly. And this is privacy, the right to control. It's not about hiding. It's not about being secretive. It's not about anything else. It's about your right to control your information and give it with your consent to the parties that you want to share with and not others doing it for you, right? This Facebook problem was a problem because Facebook shared data without the users knowing they did it, right? But, well, again, on the other side, when you sign up for Facebook, with these terms and conditions that you have agreed to, and many of them say, I have the right to do anything I want with your data, right? So you kind of agreed, but it's a, it's, we believe it's Facebook's problem for forcing people to accept the conditions or not use the service, right? There's no middle ground. Actually, we started having middle grounds now in how much we share. And you may have noticed in your phones, now you're asked for permissions, right? Can this application use a camera? Can this application use your contacts? In the past, it was take it or leave it. But through fights of activists on privacy, right, we got the right to the user to understand in, in a high level what they do with the information. Like, don't use my camera. I won't scan this, right? I'll type it. So the, the application tells you I need the camera to make, you, make it easier for you to scan your documents. You say, I don't want to. I don't trust you. I'll type it myself, right? The another app says, "Give me your contacts, so I can tell you who is who from your friends are using the same app." And you say, "I don't want that. I'll find them myself manually." And you understand there's a privacy usability trade-off, right? The more no's you set, the more difficult your life becomes. But it's much more clear interaction now. It's not like give me everything or not use the app. Is I'll tell you what I need and what I'm doing with it. And you choose not to use part of it and you make your life harder, but you control your data, right? So this is a, an improvement in privacy. The application permissions in Android and uh, OS X are improvement of the past, right? That said all permissions and then some permissions, but I need all of them, were now at the point that we select which permissions we give to the application. So you can choose to share with Samsung, right? I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm saying you should know what you do and why, right? Same with your doctor. When you go to your doctor, you share your medical history, right? And you assume there's some patient doctor confidentiality. 
But the doctor, you assume they will never share the, this with anybody else, right? Without your consent. So you choose to share to your doctor because your doctor needs to make um, some kind of uh, understanding of what your disease is, right? Some kind of diagnosis of you have this. If you lie to your doctor, you say, I, I don't have a headaches. I don't have blood pressure, right? If you say those things, the doctor won't be able to help you. If you lie, you have to share information for the doctor to make a proper diagnosis. Um, same with Google. When you use Google Maps, you share your current location, right? And that's okay. Google sees your location to help you navigate, right? But Google should not share your location with Facebook. So Facebook can send you personalized advertisements based on location, right? So that's what I'm trying to say. Privacy is the right of you to control and share with entities that you know exactly what they do with your data. So going back to the internet problem, right? I said that, you know, when my the data leaves my house here in, in New York, it goes to Korea, it goes through many computers. How can I maintain my privacy when I need to use the internet to connect to other computers around the world? And the answer to that that has been given by um, security experts, uh, actually, there are a few privacy solutions, right? Um, the first one is that used commonly, right? It's called, I call it picky swear. Uh, and is what you sign up for. So when you say terms and condition, it says that, you know, Samsung or Microsoft will not use the, your data for anything else, right? And that's, they promise to do that. And this promise is not, is, is pretty sketchy, right? In a way, because we've seen, we've seen the problems coming with that. And if you further question that, you know, do, do you really not share your data? They follow up with another amazing argument that they really don't share your data, right? But that's the best they can give you as privacy guarantee. So the guarantee you get is they promise you they won't do it. And of course, some of you or may, most of you know this is a disaster, right? From Cambridge Analytica to Ecofax to Sony's, all these data leakers that have happened either accidentally or maliciously, it happened because they promised and they couldn't follow through, right? So it's very clear to us that the, the promise, promises don't work much in real life. Uh, and companies promise that they won't look at your data doesn't really play out very well. So there's another solution that security experts are proposing. And this is how I call, I call it as technological enforcement of privacy. So no more promises, right? Let's use mathematical guarantees, right? Let's use mathematics. Cryptography, I'll explain in a few minutes what this is. Uh, but let's use technology to enforce this mathematically, right? You don't have to rely on promises anymore. But the cryptography will take over and will guarantee to you mathematically that your privacy is ensured, that your privacy is guaranteed. And the main way of, it, of technologically enforcing privacy is cryptography. So cryptography uh, is... Again, definition, the practice and study of techniques for secure communication in the presence of third parties called adversaries. In other, well, it comes from the ancient Greek, cryptos, uh, that means secret, and graphene, that means to write. So you write a secret, right? That's cryptography. It makes, it makes communication secure, even if there are people trying to eavesdrop on your communication. And I'll be using an example that there's some kind of a communication channel between Ali and Bassam, and some kind of eavesdropper called Emir in this case, um, in the US, Alice and Bob are used. I, I made it more unique to, uh, to the Arab world. Um, so this is the scenario we start, right? I'm trying, there are two people trying to talk to each other and someone listens, right? 
how can the people talk to each other without the third person getting information about the communication? This is what cryptography is trying to do. So, um, and you can think of it, you know, most of the time it's not you talking to someone else, it's you talking to the internet, right? So you can think of Basam as, you know, in this case, Facebook, right? And you can think of Amir as actually all the nodes in between. So when you type your password on Facebook, then you try to send your password to the US. You're in Abu Dhabi, you type your password to log into Facebook, you send your password to the United States. So you see, remember all the hopes that you have to go through? Well, all of them can see your password now. And that's not a good thing, right? You don't want to share your password with the whole internet. And that's a problem that we need to solve. And this is exactly, uh, if you may have noticed in your browsers, whatever browser you use, um, Chrome, Safari, or Firefox, um, you may have noticed a little lock. Nowadays, it's much more prevalent. In the past, it was not the case. But again, through awareness, through trying to improve, privacy, uh, this is becoming more common standard. So this privacy lock here means that when you talk to Facebook, nobody in the internet can see what you tell Facebook, right? Only Facebook knows what you tell it, right? This is called HTTPS. It's a protocol. And that's why you see HTTPS in the beginning of the URL of the or what you're trying to access. This is, they call it client-signed encryption. So you are the client, you encrypt, you send the data to Facebook, the data, dec the Facebook decrypts and sees your password, right? So this is the client-side encryption uh, that we, uh, that I'd like to discuss. So HTTPS is a way to make sure that when you log in to Facebook, nobody else can see the password except for Facebook, of course, because they need to authenticate you when you log in. All right, so. Let's go back to the scenario, talk with cryptographic terms. Um, so there's Alia trying to log into Facebook uh, and by typing her password, right? So this protocol I just explained, it says encrypt the password before sending, right? So this is the term here, encrypt. So what is encryption? What does it mean to encrypt? Encryption is the cryptographic transformation of something to something else, right? Of your password to something unreadable. Right, so you take the password. Your password is one, one, two, three, four, and it becomes something much longer, like like this piece of text here. So when I see that, I cannot know what your password is because it has been transformed, right, cryptographically. So there's some mathematical transformation that takes your password and gives you back something that's bigger and and unreadable. You cannot really understand what it is unless you have the you can reverse it, right, and to reverse it. And that's a decryption, right? You decrypt. To reverse, you need to have the key. So there's a secret that you have, your key. So you encrypt, you send it to the other side. They have to use the key to decrypt, but only you and the other side have the keys, right? Anybody on, on the internet, they don't have your keys. So they cannot decrypt and see your password. And that's the idea of encryption. To prevent eavesdroppers to prevent the internet from looking at what you send to Facebook. Of course, now there's a question, right? Uh, so this is the process. So you take your password, you encrypt it, you send it to the internet, Facebook gets it and decrypts it. So it logs you in if your password is correct. So the question that arises now is that, okay, you, I can send it this way, right? 
But you mentioned I have a key that only I and Facebook know. How can I exchange the key without the internet knowing, right? I mean, the solution would be I physically take the plane from Abu Dhabi and I go to uh, California and I give Facebook a secret. And you understand this is not sustainable, right? Not everybody can just go to Facebook and give them something so the internet cannot see. So there must be a process that allows me to exchange secrets even in the presence of untrusted communication. So this secret exchange over the internet is called, uh, so for example, you know, I, I bring it back before I, I tell you what it's called. I bring it back to uh, Alia talking to Bassam and there's Amir listening, right? What, you know, guilty, but I do it with my friends sometimes, you know, to communicate with some of my friends without others knowing what we say, I switch to Greek. You know, if you're on the UAE, um, well, there are many Greeks in the UAE, so many times they, people can understand what I'm saying. But you make a guess that you, when you talk to your Greek friend, I make a guess that the person I'm trying not to understand what I'm saying doesn't know Greek. And you can do it with any language, of course, right? Um, so that's a real-life solution, but it has a problem. What if the person speaks a language, right? Then some of us may have been in those awkward situations that the person actually understood and you now depend on what you said. You may be in a very awkward spot. Uh, so you understand this is not the perfect solution and it's not really mathematically proven to be secure. So in cryptography, uh, we have what is called a, a secret exchange, right? And this is called Diffie-Hellman and those two gentlemen got the Turing Award for this invention. It's huge and it changed how uh, trust and privacy works over the internet. But instead of mathematics, I'll try to explain a secret exchange through um, using colors, right? So let's say Alia and Bassam has a common they have a common color, like yellow, and then they have their own secret that only themselves know, right? So Alia picks red, I mean, I'm bad with colors, excuse me, um, and Bassam picks green, teal, I don't know, I'll call it green, right? So this is secret to them. Um, so Alia picks red, Bassam picks green, and what they do is they mix the colors, right? So um, orange will be produced here, while blue will be produced in Bassam's case. So Bassam combined yellow and green, and blue came out. Alia used yellow and red, and orange came out, right? So they don't know each other's secret. Alia picked red, Bassam picked green, but they don't know that. So what they do now, right, be, remember they need to communicate in untrusted territory, right, where people are, are seeing what they exchange with each other. So they meet, and Alia gives orange to Bassam, and Bassam gives blue to Alia, right? They exchange their containers. And there, Emir can see that. Emir can see that there's orange and blue, but Emir doesn't know the red, and he doesn't know the green either. Same with Ali. Ali doesn't know the green and Bassam doesn't know the red, right? So there's this transport and Amir, we assume, and that happens mathematically when I explain it somewhat the mathematics, is that once you have blue, there could be many combinations of colors that lead you to the blue. So Amir doesn't know that this blue came from yellow and green. It could have been some other combination that led to this specific color. So we assume that the mix of separation is expensive, right?
Okay, so to continue the protocol of the, the secret exchange, so Alia uses her secret color to the container that Sam provided, right, to the blue one, and another color comes up, brown, right? So this brown color here is a combination of yellow, blue, remember, sorry, green, because remember Basap gave her the blue, right? So in blue, there's yellow and green, and now there's red, and brown comes out. The same thing, so Basam knows he used blue before, sorry, green, um, because it looks more blue than green. That's why I'm confused by my own poor selection of color naming. Uh, so this, this green color here, um, it, it, I, it, Basam used it again, so in this orange thing, there is yellow and red. So if you put green, you come up again with the same color, brown, right? So both of them, they came up with the same common secret. So by, and Amir doesn't know what this is because he cannot separate those colors. He doesn't know how orange was created and he doesn't know how blue was created. But the, the brown is yellow, red, and green on both sides, right? Because the exchange, they emit in mixture. Of course, in, in, in real cryptography, we don't use paints, we use mathematics, right? And I won't try to bore you to death with the mathematics. I'll just very quickly go through so you understand it's not exactly, well, it's magic, but not too much magic, right? It's linear algebra mostly and modular arithmetic. So instead of colors, they pick numbers, uh, so 23 and 5, and then Alia will pick her secret and will use one of the numbers and will raise that to the exponent, producing another number. Basam will also do the same. So here the secret is 4 and 3. Before, remember, the secret was green and red. Now I pick numbers of secrets and I produce a function out of the numbers that, you know, I have 4 and then I have 10. So I do some more computation that I, I end up with the same answer. So if I do this math here, by selecting those numbers, we both compute 18. Both Alia and Basam compute the number 18, right? So this is their common secret that they exchanged while Emir was listening to the public communication. So Emir listened to a few things, right? Emir listened to P, G, uh, also listened to capital A and also to capital B. So he, know, he knows four numbers, right? He doesn't know two numbers. So, you know, through high school, can we create a series of equations that will let us solve for the missing parameters, right? And the answer is, it's very difficult to do. So that's why this was carefully chosen, right? So it's a specific problem, we call it discrete logarithm problem. And the idea of that is to, to reverse, to find the secret, given the information you have, you will need a lot of time, right? Because we don't know how to solve it fast. And this is exactly the heart of cryptography. The heart of cryptography is some kind of a hardness assumption, right? How difficult is to reverse something? And um, typically, most of the cryptographic systems say you cannot reverse it unless you know it's another secret that's a private key. So, again, basic cryptography, the, if you, you know, you can focus on the, on the pains, right? How the exchange happens. But again, Alia and Bassam came together to the number 18 while Emir was listening to everything they were exchanging. 
but Emir cannot deduce the number 18 from the communication he overheard. That's exactly how the internet works. Um, so now with um, uh, Messenger, right? So Facebook is insecure. So I, when I talk to Facebook, nobody can hear what I'm saying. So since Messenger is a Facebook uh, application, when I talk to through Messenger to my friend, Alia talks to Bassam, then I'm fine, right? And the answer is no, uh, we're not really fine because what Facebook Messenger does is actually it communicates, it encrypts only the communication to the servers. So for you to talk to Bassam, for Alia to talk to Bassam um, and say Ahlan, right? So Ahlan is encrypted, but Messenger decrypts and sees Ahlan, re-encrypts and sends to Bassam. So you understand that Facebook now can see exactly what you, what Alia tells Bassam, right? So when the internet cannot see, there's encryption there, Messenger can see, right? And that's not unexpected. Remember, Facebook makes money out of data. So they have a, a strong interest into looking at your data to be able to get information and use it to sell advertisements to you at the best case scenario. Right? It can be used for other purposes, more nefarious ones. Um, that's a problem, right? That's a privacy problem. If Facebook sees my communications and I don't know about it, then it's a privacy concern because I don't control that Facebook sees my information and how to stop it from controlling, from seeing that. So the answer to the problem of Facebook seeing my messenger communications is uh, called end, sorry, end-to-end -end encryption, right? You have seen it if you use WhatsApp, and I used WhatsApp as an example because I know most of the UAE is using WhatsApp. So WhatsApp says I offer you end-to-end -end encryption. So end-to-end -end encryption promises that even the provider, in this case WhatsApp, cannot see the send messages, right? So whenever you start a communication with someone, this message on WhatsApp will come up. Messages and calls are end-to-end -end encrypted. No one outside of the chat, not even WhatsApp, can read or listen to them, right? So it tells you that when people talk on WhatsApp, even WhatsApp itself doesn't know what it does. And to give some credit to uh, Facebook, Messenger can do it only when you explicitly go to secret conversation, right? So if you go to secret conversation with someone, then Facebook enables end-to-end -end encryption then you can do it without Messenger looking at what you have. But behind end-to-end -end, end -end encryption, the heart of it is a protocol, the Signal protocol, and Signal is also an application by itself instantiating the Signal protocol. And I'll spend the last part of the talk talking about the Signal protocol, right? Um, so the Signal protocol, uh, what it does, it, it, allow, it enables this end-to-end -end encryption. And to give some more details, Remember that, you know, I have, I installed a signal, right, in my, in my uh, phone or my computer, and I'm talking to someone else, someone else. To find the other person, it's hard, right? I mean, I need to somehow reach to them. I cannot know who has it, and I don't know if they have it, how to find them, right? So, again, there's a server. A server is needed, right? A server is needed, some, someone in the middle, to be able to deliver things offline. So what if Bassam is not on the internet when I'm trying to text him? If there's no one in between, I send a message, the message gets lost. But if there's a server in between, it allows you asynchronous communication, but it, it trades that for some privacy, right? Because Signal knows who's talking to whom. The same with WhatsApp, 
the same with Messenger. Messenger knows Alia talks to Bassam, but they don't know what they say. So the metadata part is shared, but the content is hidden, right? So this is what the server, the mediation of the server, uh, is a privacy trade-off. The other thing that's a privacy trade-off is to sign up to WhatsApp or Signal, you need to provide your phone number. And many times your phone number is tied to you because you have to provide an ID to Etisalat or to Wind in Greece or to Verizon here in the US when you sign up for a phone number. So you have to tell them who you are and they connect your phone number to you. So now you and your number are connected. So Alia is not anonymous anymore. We know who Alia is exactly with your number. And when she talks to Bassam, um, we also know who Bassam is, right? That's another trade-off. Uh, you, you give your number, so you provide who you are to the service, but then this gives you the ability to find others on Signal, right, or on WhatsApp. If you don't have the numbers, you cannot know who uses WhatsApp and you cannot find them on WhatsApp. So that's another trade-off that we, um, that is given. Again, many of these things are trade-offs. Privacy, usability is a trade-off. So for the encryption to work, um, again, we have to create a common secret. And remember the process I explained before, it's the same process. Ali and Bassam need to create a secret to be able to start encrypting the communication. But the single, I mean, the secret creation here is just much more than just one number. It's four numbers. There are four secrets we need to create. Um, the first secret is authentication to make sure Alia is who sees, she says. Bassam, the same thing. Bassam needs to authenticate for the second secret. The third secret provides forward secrecy. I'll explain in a few minutes what this is. But in, in a nutshell, that if my keys are stolen, can the thief encrypt, decrypt, and see everything I have said in my life, right? So you need more keys to prevent this from happening. Like, like uh, if you lose a key, what happens to all the messages you have sent? Or only a subset is affected. That's what the other two key exchanges are doing. So if they only key exchange three and four, what they do is make sure that if your keys are stolen, that not all your messages can be decrypted. So your secret now is a combination of the four sub-secrets. So you created four secrets. Every secret has a different purpose. And you have a super secret that you share and you know every party has. The second step would be to use the secret to send messages, right? So when you use your secret to encrypt, nobody can see what you're sending to the other side because only you, only Alia and Bassam know the secret. Signal doesn't know the secret, so they cannot decrypt what you're saying. Uh, as I said before, there's a problem. What if my secret is stolen, right? What happens? If my secret is stolen, then everything breaks. And we'd, we'd like to mitigate that. We'd like to reduce the effect of this, the theft because it may happen, right? Security is about risk reduction, right? What if this happens? So that's why we use, every time we send a message, we'll create a new key, right? So I send a message with a key and I create a new key. So if you steal my previous key, you cannot steal the other, you cannot decrypt the other messages because you need the other keys. Every message has a different key. So that's what Signal does, right? Every time I send a message, a new key is created, right? Or derived through some kind of a key derivation function. Okay, so that solves the problem if I lose one key that my communication won't fall apart. There's a second problem. Remember that 
every time I create a key, I take it through a key derivation function. And this function was great in one way. So if I give this key here, another key comes out, and I cannot reverse that. These are one-way functions. They're, you can go one way, but it's very difficult to go the other way. Uh, so through these one-way functions, uh, once I break that key here, I cannot go back. I don't know what the previous keys were, but I know what the next keys will be, right? Because I can use the same function to keep creating keys and breaking all the messages after. So I cannot break the messages before, but I can break all the messages after I steal a key. So that's another problem. Right? How do we solve that? So to solve the problem, the signal protocol says, then not only change the key every time, but also change the way you're creating keys. So the way I create keys also changes. So the attacker, besides stealing a key, they need to also steal how I create keys. And that's not easy. Uh, and they make, it makes it much more difficult for them. So, and this completes end-to-end -end encryption, right? End-to-end -end encryption is enabled by the two mechanisms I told you about. One, secret exchange, and second, how I encrypt the messages before sending them to the other side. So, so WhatsApp is good, right? I mean, since it does end-to-end -end encryption, I'm fine. I don't have to worry about WhatsApp servers looking at what I'm, I'm telling my friends. Well, the answer here is actually this is not correct. Uh, why am I saying that? Well, first, WhatsApp is, is closed source. And what this means is that independent researchers like myself, we cannot look at the code of WhatsApp and ensure that nothing problematic has been added, right? So it cannot be confirmed by independent researchers that WhatsApp is fully secure and properly implements the signal protocol. That's one problem. Second problem is we have to trust the owner of WhatsApp, that's Facebook. And Facebook has a very contradicting mission, right? Facebook mission is to make money out of data, right? So I trust a service that is owned by a company that makes money by looking at my data, right? And I trust that it doesn't look at my data. So this is problematic, right? Of course, it hasn't been proven that WhatsApp can look at your data, looks at your data, right? But what I'm saying, the other side hasn't been proven either. We don't know whether it doesn't do it. Um, and the other thing that definitely we know is that if you back up your WhatsApp, so remember, if you go to your settings, it tells you you don't want to back up daily when you change phones or your texts come back. If you, uh, if you back up, this backup is not encrypted. So your texts are actually in Google Drive and then in plain text. So even if WhatsApp doesn't see what you exchange. Google can see what you exchange because you put on, you put it on Google's service. So there are many moving parts when we're talking about end-to-end -end encryption. And the only thing I want you to keep uh, from this, at least, right? Uh, maybe you'll keep more, but at least there's one thing to keep. End-to-end -end encryption doesn't mean perfect privacy, right? It gives you some trade-offs, but you should be aware it's not perfect and it has its own issues as well. So, and the last thing I'll, I'll, uh, I'll discuss is, um, you know, sometimes there are legitimate reasons to actually compute an data, right? Uh, let me give you an example. Um, so, we have our DNA. It's unique to every individual. Uh, and our DNA can say a lot about us, right? That's why there's a privacy problem. Uh, DNA can be used for cancer predisposition, right? For a doctor to understand 
whether you're more likely to get cancer, a specific type of cancer, compared to the average person, right? And many of these cancers are genetic, and you get the predisposition from your parents. So if, you know, whenever you go to the doctor, they say, what do your parents have, right? Because that's a very good indication about what you might have or what, what you might develop if you're not careful. So DNA can be used to look at whether you have some predisposition to some types of cancer, right? But you cannot do that. You have to send your DNA to another party, right? To another entity. I'm, I'm doing my DNA sequencing and I have to send it to a hospital somewhere else to do the analysis. And now there's some privacy problem. For example, if my health insurance in the United States finds that I'm actually have susceptibility to some of the diseases, right? I may, I may be prone to get prostate cancer. Then they may kick me out as a patient because they know in the future I may get cancer and I'll cost them a lot because I have to go to do chemotherapy. I have to be hospitalized. So if they find out this is the case, they may kick me out or they may increase my premium, right? Instead of a hundred dollars, I'll pay a million dollars a month in a way forcing me out of the program. So you understand the privacy problem, right? You, you want to analyze your data and get answers for your health. But if this leaks, if the data falls in the wrong hands, then you have some problems in this case, health insurance premiums will go way up. And you have, when you, if you actually get it, hopefully not, you won't be able to cover your uh, treatment because you won't have insurance. So currently the state of the art that's kind of problematic is, you know, you send, there's a sequencing lab um, that uh, you collect your DNA locally, right? DNA can be collected through saliva or, or hair, like so. You send, you, you spit on something and what you do, you have to send it for DNA sequencing, right? So there's some analysis that happens that, you know, you sequence the DNA and even if the sequencing happens when you actually spit and when you actually collect the sample, right? The processing on the data happens somewhere else, right? The answer whether you have cancer predisposition happens at another lab somewhere else. So you, you sequence your DNA and you get some, you know, the, the, basis like ACGT and then you send that to a, to a lab and the lab has to give you an answer. To give you an answer they have to see your DNA. So what they do they you know when, even if you protected the internet you from the internet right so when you send your data you sequence your DNA and you send it to the other side internet didn't see what you did because of the encryption we talked about before. So the internet communication was fine but the data the data uh, that will process your data, the, the service that will process your data, can see your data, of course, right? Because they have to process it. So they take your encrypted data, they decrypt it, they operate on it, and then they re-encrypt it and send it back to you, right? So the internet doesn't see the answer, whether you have predisposition to cancer or not. You can see it when you decrypt, the internet doesn't, but the, there are two entities that know the answer you and the entity that processed the data. And you understand there's a problem, right? What if this entity here messes up? What if this entity loses your data? What if someone attacks this, uh, cyber attacks this entity and your data is leaked or they, this provider sells the data for money to health providers to make money for them and they don't care about your privacy, right? 
So that's a problem. That's a privacy problem. And it comes from the fact that we, you know, we encrypt data, but we need to compute on them. We need to get answers, right? And to get answers, you have to decrypt and see. So the decrypt and see introducing privacy problems. So Oscar kind of mentioned it in his introduction, and this is one of the unique things we do in NYU Dhabi and my research group, is we have, we're using a cryptographic way to operate on the data without actually decrypting them, right? And this special type of encryption is called homomorphic encryption. So it, again, it's a special type of encryption, right? A special type of cryptography that allows you to compute without decryption. And this is also technological enforcement privacy because before this person here will, will promise to you, hey, I'm not going to give the data to, to anyone. Don't worry, right? So your privacy is enforced by the person keeping the promise. Of course, this is not technological, right? Technological enforcement means I use mathematics. So in this case, what we promote in NYU Budabi as a solution to the problem, to the privacy problem in the interconnected world that everybody can see all the data is that if you encrypt the data, you send it over, computation happens directly on encrypted data, and then you get the answer back and you see the answer. So he, see the external party has no idea what the answer is. So they cannot, they cannot break the promise because they don't know, right? How can you give, a, how can you break a promise of something you haven't promised? They don't know what the answer is. So even if you go there and say, give me that guy's uh, results, they say, well, I don't know the results because the way I operate the data, I didn't see any answers. That's exactly the special type of encryption we're focusing on. The only small problem that's more of a big problem with using this, um, uh, this type of encryption is um, it's very slow in computational power. So something that would take you one minute to compute, like uh, to, to get some answers, one minute can become one century like 100 years, and this is not good, right? You don't want to wait 100 years to get an answer. You want it much faster. You're willing to wait a bit longer, but not much longer, right? I mean, 100 years, probably going to be dead, but whatever disease you have. So you have to get answers faster. And in any way you would have what we have done as an extremely unique innovation, we created hardware, like we fabricated new hardware and created it, that allows you to do it fast and accurately, right? So, and as Osgo said, we have it in our lab. Uh, everybody's welcome to come and see how we actually do it and the whole setup we have, right? But this chip here we have created, uh, it can directly process security data in, in a fast and a secure way. So you don't have to wait for a century. You can get your answers much, much faster in the practical times. So that's part of our research in where you would be and, you know, I think this is a good uh, stop with this um, shameless bragging to stop my talk and opening up for questions. Thank you very much, uh, Mihaly, for this great talk. Um, so um, now, you know, uh, I, I invite the audience to type their questions so that uh, I can basically read over that, read them over here and uh, Mihaly can answer them. So um, I, here I have some uh, nice comments about your talk, a great talk, great information. And also I have a couple of questions that I'll read them one at a time. Uh, the, the first question has already been answered. Uh, you know, I was asked somewhere at the beginning of the talk, but maybe I'll give you a chance to 
uh, reiterate, is there an option to not accept the terms and conditions and still access the product? I guess this goes back to your privacy usability trade-off. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, we've been fighting a lot for this not to be a blanket one checkbox, right? Currently, you may see more than one checkbox and say, I accept this, I accept that. And you can opt out some of them, right? We're still not there. I mean, the big companies, the one TV will say all or nothing uh, to kind of blackmail you into accepting that. But the phones are a good start, right? The fact that Android OS X asks you, can I use a camera? And you can say no and still use the application. That's a big step towards the right direction. Um, phones are always pioneers in that because they're much more used by people and people um, see exactly what's happening. Smart TVs will definitely follow. Many of these devices are accept eventually will follow. And many times you'll hear saying, it's all or nothing, sorry. If I give, if I want to give you a great service, you have to give me anything I need, right? And it's up to us to say no to that, right? Just go somewhere else. Find, find more consumer privacy friendly uh, manufacturers. Punish manufacturers for taking this attitude, right? And tell Samsung, look, I know there's only LG that lets me actually not share my data. I'm going to buy that. If It's all about money. If Samsung sees that everybody buys LG because of the privacy policy, they'll change their policies now, right? Because money is power. And they'll say, okay, um, yeah, well, it doesn't work out. I'm not making money. So I need to be more privacy focused. So it's also on the consumer side to be resistant to all or nothing that has been kind of enforced to us and we don't think too much about it. Right, so it's on us. So the other question is, um, combining what you have mentioned about the risks and data sharing uh, with the fact that data is the new gold, shouldn't there be a way for all users on the web to monitor what personal data and how they are used for? Likewise, we do with the money. And as long as there is no such thing, how can we protect our privacy proactively? That's an excellent question. Um, we're in the process of trying to do that, right? You may have seen that the European Union is also leading that. Um, they introduced um, legislation and regulations that they force Facebook to give you everything they have for you. Same with Google, right? Uh, and this is happening currently. Of course, there's a long way to go. Uh, they, uh, we don't know whether they give us everything. And also, there's so much data produced that even them don't know exactly what they have, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happening on the internet. Let's, I mean, I can, I'll give them the benefit of doubt to some extent, but they're mostly guilty, right? They know exactly what they do because that's the business model. Um, so even though regulations are trading in, in Europe is pioneering that with the GDPR, that there is uh, an effort, and, and U.S. is following to an extent, uh, there's an effort for consumers to know exactly the data collected for them. We're getting there, but we're not there yet. And it will take, it's an uphill battle, right? Because the other side knows the technology and people want to use it. People, you know, there's some people that say, I don't use a phone because, you know, they're using it against me, right? And you say that guy is crazy because they, they miss on other things. We don't want to miss on talking to our friends on WhatsApp. We choose to understand that we're taking the risk. But it shouldn't, it shouldn't be such a blatant violation of privacy, right? And that's why security experts, me included, but many others, are trying to make it much more privacy-friendly. You can know exactly what... And you, we have won a few fights, right? Facebook, you can go and see exactly what they have for you. Google, the same. You, we want the right to be forgotten that, you know, in the past, if you wanted to delete something with Google for you, you couldn't. 
Now this is not the case. Now you can tell Google, can you delete this piece of information for me that appears in your search results? That's a win on behalf of the privacy advocates. We're getting there, but there's a long, long uphill battle uh, that we're currently doing. Right. Uh, the next question is, is homomorphic encryption similar to zero-knowledge encryption? No, they're very different things. Um, there's no, there's no zero-knowledge encryption. Uh, there's zero-knowledge proofs. Uh, that's a very different notion. Um, and I'd like, I can take that. This is a very technological question. I'm happy to answer it, but I think 99% of the people won't understand the answer. Right. So that person who asked, you can see my email. Please email me and we're very happy to talk to you exactly about the differences. Right. So something that uh, everybody can follow. How fast is your chip in operations per second, integer or floating point? Okay. Well, the computer engineers can follow, right? Uh, <laughs> so what our chip does, it, it makes computation approximately one order of magnitude slower, right? And that's a huge win because in the past, uh, with the encryption, we're going from, we're going up to nine orders of magnitude. So it was a terrible trade. It was a terrible thing. Now we're a bit slower, like one second will become 10 seconds. One day becomes 10 days. That's a problem, right? Uh, but we're a bit, we're an order in some applications. In some applications, we're much more than an order. So it's, uh, that's another very hot topic. We're trying to be better and make it much faster. But again, research um, it's difficult, right? This is the level we're doing it. It's a very difficult problem to make it much faster because of the mathematics behind it. Remember I said one thing becomes something very big. In this special type of encryption, it's even bigger, right? Like one bit, if you, under, if you know what a bit is, becomes 55 kilobytes. Mm -hmm. And you have to process that in a regular CPU. This is not easy. That's why we created new hardware because our standard computers operate on small amounts of data, like 64-bit data, like very small amounts, chunks of data. But now we have to operate on millions of bits together. So that's why new hardware is the solution, is towards the solution to make this, making this much faster. I'm not giving you numbers, um, but you can read the papers mentioned and you can see the exact numbers there. And if you don't find the papers, I'll be happy to send them to you. All right. Um, can uh, the end-to-end -end encryption see information such as when a, when a message is sent and from where it was sent? Yes, it can. And I, I brought this up as metadata, right? So there's the data, which is the content of the message. There's the metadata, which is who's talking to whom, when. So they can do, they can see that. WhatsApp sees who's talking to whom and when, but they don't see the content of uh, this. And if you don't want this to happen, you shouldn't use a server-based thing, but then it becomes unusable, right? If you use a peer-to-peer -peer thing, you know, I, maybe I have some of my friends in the audience, there was this um, app called Bleep that was peer-to-peer, -peer, no servers. And the message will never arrive to the other side, right? So we're texting each other, the other person will never get the text because of lack of users, because it was offline for some reason. So that, and we stopped using it. It wasn't usable. It was very secure, but not usable at all. So to bring usability, we have to trade some privacy. And what we trade with WhatsApp and Signal is phone number attached to our identity and the metadata of who am I talking to and when. This is known to the providers. Okay. Um, does, uh, does selling these machines after using them or exchanging them with another person affect your privacy? 
machines, um, televisions, you know, all these okay, things. Okay, right. Um, yes and no, right? Uh, so the, the the no part is, you know, there's always some kind of a way to factory reset whatever you have done, right? Uh, so if you do that, you should be fine. But I don't think any of us does that. There are many cases in the past when I was younger and I was getting very like uh, secondhand computer equipment because it was cheaper. I was poor. Uh, I could find a lot of stuff in the devices, right? And that happened all the time. So when you give it to someone, unless you specifically wipe it out, find a way to do it, there will be your data there. And they may, you most probably they won't be able to use it uh, because they're nice people that just bought your stuff and they just wanted to use it for their stuff, right? But, you know, you have to think about the risks. If you have something that you care about, you have to find a way to clear it, delete it, wipe it out before you sell your equipment to someone else. Yeah, good practice. So, um, uh, you know, a lot of Greeks following your talk, apparently they're all celebrating your, uh, congratulating your, you know, name day, by the way. <laughs> so, Thank uh, you, Jeremy. Yeah. And uh, another question comes from a friend. He says, uh, a lot of things are produced to make profit. I'm sorry, IoT things are produced to make profit. In other words, you know, cheaper. This contradicts them, you know, there's the contradiction to making them secure. So what are your thoughts about it? This is, well, let me say it's not the state's question, right? I didn't ask uh, Oleg to, to ask that. Um, <laughs> but that's an excellent question, right? IoT devices are prevalent because they're very cheap. When you, you know, when you buy the fitted tracker and it would cost like $10,000, you wouldn't buy it, right? I mean, if that whatever smart stuff you buy is very expensive, you choose not to buy. So adding security would make the product more expensive. But it's up to the consumers to actually value our privacy, right? So I'm going to ask a question back to everybody who listens. If there's a device that costs $10 and gives your data to Facebook, and the device that costs $20, and doesn't give you data to Facebook, would you buy the more expensive one if you know it's more secure, right? If you answer this, the companies will receive your answer and will behave accordingly. If all the answers are $10, I don't care, then they'd be producing the $10. If your, your answer, like all of us here, is $20 because I value my privacy, then the $10 company will say, okay, we don't make money out of this, right? We need to add security. It will be more expensive, but they, they're buying that, right? People are buying iPhones, they're very expensive. There's a reason they do that, right? There's something iPhone gives to people, they choose an expensive iPhone compared to a cheap phone. So it's going to be the same thing. The values that will come with the IoT device, even though they may be more expensive, you would value them a lot in the trade-off for, okay, this will break fast, this will do that. So we have a lot of, when we make a decision, we have a lot of factors we, we introduce, right? Uh, one of them should be privacy and security. Is this product secure, right? I'm going to add it to the checklist, and if it's more secure and it's only $5 more, I'm going to do it. $5 is worth it for, for this, right? Or maybe it's not. I mean, the problem with privacy and data, it's just we don't see it, right? Our data is an imaginary thing. And it's not like someone is taking my laptop physically, right? When something happens physically, I have emotions about it. When someone steals my data, it's a virtual thing. And I don't think too much, right, or whatever. But you can think, like, think of police coming to your house just checking around, right? You open the drawers, checking and saying, okay, we're good, I'm going. If you see that with your eyes, you'd be saying, well, I don't like that. But this happens with in the virtual world, the cyber world, right? And we don't care as much because we don't see it with our eyes. But a talk like this, what I'm trying to do is to raise awareness 
and make everybody understand that when you buy an IoT device, this device will send your data all over the world. And you should be aware of that when you buy it. Thank you. Um, there's a question, technical question about uh, the chip fabrication process that, uh, that we have used. Um, they're asking, is it 10 nanometer? Is it seven nanometer? Do you have a FPGA code uh, for the VHDL code available? I feel, I feel bad for uh, giving such rough estimates about all these things when there's actually technical people listening, right? right. I think I may have offended many of them. Uh, I'll, I'll give a very quick answer. Everything is in the paper. I think because most of the audience is not an expert, I'll keep it very short. We use 65 nanometers and we have the VHDL available. Um, 10x is very specific to the application, right? I want to give a, a rough order of magnitude. It's typically much more on a typical application. We have to engineer the application to get only 10x slowdown. Typically, it's much slower than this. Uh, so keep that in mind if you're looking for answers specifically to that. But this, the papers we have will give you all the answers you need. And the, FP, the FPGA code, the VHDL, I think it's very long, we have it in very long, is available on uh, my lab's website. If you scan the QR code, go to coffee, and you'll find all the code for the processor. Right. And uh, multiple people asked about the recording of this. Uh, so this is going to be available on YouTube, uh, on the Institute's uh, YouTube channel. Please follow that. And at some point, uh, this the recording will be available there. Um, so I think uh, I went through either all or most of the questions. So I'd like to uh, thank you, uh, Mihalis, on behalf of all the audience. Uh, this was very informative and uh, we wish you the best of luck with your research on uh, privacy preserving computation so that we don't get to worry about uh, our end-to-end -end encrypted uh, computa uh, communication. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.